0: itunes presents meet the filmmaker at the apple store
1: good evening ladies and gentlemen welcome to the apple store soho how are we all doing tonight there we go better Better. Last time I asked, one person clapped. So I appreciate that. We've got a good vibe going right now. So this is really, really exciting for us. Uh, Apple and IndieWire have teamed up to bring you guys a lot of really amazing events. We're smack dab in the middle of Tribeca. So we're going to kick this off in just a second. But as I said earlier, we're partnered up with IndieWire. We're very excited about that. So to actually talk about IndieWire a little bit more, I'd like to invite Basil to the stage. So guys, a warm round of applause for Basil from IndieWire. Thanks a lot. So uh, uh, Apple and uh,
0: IndieWire have been partnering to do these uh, these film talks for, for quite a while now. Uh, they will continue through the end of the festival, so until next uh, Saturday, or this actually coming Saturday. Uh, we usually have two or three a day. Um, Actually, Sunday, I think we have I'm sorry. Um, uh, we have, obviously, t- today's uh, right now, um, and we have one at 8 o'clock with uh, Babies, um, which is a great documentary that's opening soon. Um, so we want to thank Apple for working with us. Uh, we also want to let you know about IndieWire. IndieWire.com is uh, a website that focuses on independent film. Uh, it connects filmmakers, fans, and uh, an industry. Uh, we
1: do film reviews. We do dis- dispatches from film festivals um, and lots of coverage uh, all the time. So d- check it out. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the stage Ed Burns and this evening's guest moderator Dave Carger of Entertainment Weekly.
0: Thanks for coming, everybody. Uh, Despite the rain, I really appreciate it. Um, What's going on is that uh, a young guy who's engaged to be married in a couple of weeks who lives out in Oakland is traveling to New York to interview for a job with his fiance's father's friend, and he decides to hang out with his Uncle Terry, who's something of a devil on his shoulder as far as not wanting him to commit. So here's a guy who doesn't really know if he's fully happy in the relationship he's in, and he is hanging out with his with his uncle who is encouraging him to maybe broaden his horizons, and he's helped on that journey by a local Long Island girl that he meets, and we'll get to her in a little bit. But what's interesting, Ed, in the premiere of this film that just happened on Friday night here at the Tribeca Film Festival, you were talking about how this was probably the most personal film you've made since The Brothers McMullen, and I think people who heard you say that probably expected you to say that it had something to do with something that happened earlier in your career when you were around the age of this character, but that's not, at all why this is a personal film it really has to do with something that happened more recently in your professional life right
2: uh... yeah i mean uh... the funny thing is also some people when i said that thought uh... there was something in me in that long island mook that you just saw in the pool <laughs> um, so that wasn't the personal aspect i just want to clarify that uh, yeah um... you know it's funny been doing this now fifteen years and it never gets any easier if you uh, sort of insist on making these small personal films, so uh, two years ago um, uh, I go to a new agency. My agent sit uh, sit me down, and I had a film the year before called Purple Violets, which was released on iTunes actually. Uh, but we we um, uh, we didn't get theatrical distribution on that film. So the new agent sit me down and say, "All right, your last film uh, didn't get theatrical." maybe it's time to rethink uh, some of your career choices. Your, uh, you know, this, this um, indie personal filmmaker thing um, maybe isn't the smartest path for you. So they suggested I, I put myself for what they call open directing assignments, where basically the studios have a bunch of scripts and um, uh, this slate of films that they want to come out the next year, and they thought I would be a perfect fit for a mainstream romantic comedy. So, uh, you know, I've got a couple of kids, I got a mortgage, uh, I could have used a uh, an influx of cash, so I finally said, you know what, why not? Why don't I, why don't I do this? Put the dream aside, go do it. Um, I read a bunch of these scripts, and I, you know, I, I don't even wanna say if they're good or bad, they're just not what I care about. They're not the kind of films I go to see, but even still, I said, why not take the meetings? I took the meetings, and there was this one film, I was pretty close, I said, you know, give me the weekend, I'll reread it, and I'll tell you what I'm going to do on Monday. And uh, it was a very tough decision to make because, um, you know, you'd have a $45 million budget, you'd have a couple of movie stars, you'd be guaranteed not just a theatrical release, but probably, you know, 2,500 screens, Mm -hmm. Uh, which, you know, if anybody's an aspiring filmmaker out there, you know how badly you want that. Uh, But at the end of the day, I couldn't do it. I I did not, you know, uh, slave through my 20s to get that first film made, um, which I, you know, and I got lucky enough where I got picked up for distribution and then spent my whole adult life trying to pursue that, you know, that Woody Allen, uh, Truffaut dream. I wanted to be a writer, director of personal films uh, to then just kind of like give up for the paycheck. So, that Monday, I sat down with my producing partner, a guy named Aaron Lubin, who's here, and we said, all right, well, now what the hell are we gonna do? Uh, so we sat down and, and started to map out a story that looked at how tough that, that decision is, um, or, or was for me. And you know, most of our friends are actors and, and musicians and other filmmakers or people in the arts, and you know, now more so than ever, uh, as it becomes tougher and tougher to monetize these things, everybody's wrestling with that. You know, do I continue with this band or should I go take the job with my dad's company? Um, so that's what we were looking to explore.
0: So when a decision like that is made, what kind of corners need to get cut? I mean, did, did I read that this was a film that you guys almost shot kind of on the fly? I mean, not necessarily going through every permit or all of that. I mean, what was the process? How did the process change as a result of it being such a small personal project,
2: uh, you know, in the beginning we were trying to. Uh, we thought, um, in order to raise money for the budget, we thought, why don't we just shoot a couple of scenes? It's kind of it, it was really a return in a way of what I did with Brothers McMullen. Uh, you know, in that film, I got five thousand dollars from my dad, and I shot a couple of scenes, thinking I would use that to raise the rest of the money, and instead ended up shooting half of the movie, and then said, all right, let's just go all the way. And this wasn't exactly like that, but that's kind of how we started. We just brought in Matt Bush, the kid who played the lead, and we shot a couple of scenes with him to see, all right, if we're going to go down this path again, and anytime you make these indie films, it's impossible to get the money. We just wanted to make sure that um, we had what we thought that we had if That makes any sense. So that but,
0: means you're shooting scenes with just him. There's scenes where the, the lead character is a sports talk radio host. So there's scenes with him by himself. Are those the kind of scenes you had to shoot just to keep it simple?
2: Yeah. And the other thing we were doing is, you know, there's this uh, new camera out called the Red Camera, uh, which is what we shot this film on. And uh, we had shot a web series with that, um, but we'd never seen it projected in a big room, um, so we didn't know um, if it could. Ha- we didn't know what it could handle. So that was another reason why we just decided to shoot a couple of scenes, test it, see if this model worked before we said, all right, let's go shoot the feature. Huh.
0: So if you're not getting every permit that you need, I mean, there's some shots that you're in Manhattan. I yeah. mean, were there any close calls where people were like, what is going on? You got to get out of here? And you uh,
2: had... No, not really in Manhattan. In Manhattan, a lot of times you can get sort of a blanket permit, you know. Um, uh, but there were certain locations out in the Hamptons where the bulk of the film is shot where... Uh, we knew there was, there's one beach in this area in Springs that, um, it's that scene where she comes out of the water, mm. um, that I knew at sunset was just a magical spot. And quite honestly, we didn't even know who to contact to get a permit there. So that's one where we just kind of, uh, gambled and went down there and the crew was small enough that we were able to, um, uh, you know, to knock it off and get out of there, uh, before it got dark and nobody was the wiser.
0: It's a it's a really satisfying film. It's really sweet. There's some great performances in it. I think a lot of people who think movies are too long these days will also be happy. I think it's about 85 or 88 minutes or something like that. Was that also a consideration like hey, let's keep this short, sharp and cheap basically?
2: You know, uh most of my films tend to be, you know, 90 minutes to 95 minutes. Um a big reason is uh, you know, again I'm a huge Woody Allen fan, and he tends to stay about there in his lens. And those movies never feel like um, uh, they always feel they're, they're kind of perfect, you know? Um, but I got advice on my very first film. There's a guy named Ted Hope, who is sort of the, the indie producer. And the first cut of Brothers McMullen was two hours long, and we were going through cutting it down. Um, and he said, Look, you've got to get this down to 95 minutes. And I said, Why? He goes, Well, First of all, no one ever walks out of the theater and says, man, that movie was too short. But almost every film you see, someone says, eh, it's about that 20 minutes in the middle that maybe they could have gotten rid of. So I've always, I've always heeded that advice. Um, and the other bit of advice he gave me is, you know, if that scene is so great that you cut out, um, put it in the next script that you're going to write. Uh, and I've never done that with any scene I've let go of, so those scenes, you really don't miss them, and you don't need them. Right. So,
0: How does the process of writing these movies change, if at all, from when you're kind of writing yourself as the, the young lead, as compared to now when you're writing yourself as the Old dog. 40-year-old <laughs> uncle, and then there's someone else who's in the, the 20s. Yeah. Does that change the process when you're imagining how you're going to fit into it as a performer?
2: Um, interesting. Well, you know, early on especially with some of the ensembles, with the brothers and things, a lot of times when I was writing those scripts, I didn't know what brother I wanted to play. And uh, a good exercise for me is I tend to, um, uh, sometimes I I was guilty of giving myself some of the better lines. So uh, sometimes I would force myself to say, all right, you're gonna play this part, kind of knowing I wasn't, in order to see if I could fuel some good lines to that character. Um, but that's when I was uh, young and foolish now I just kind of um, I, I don't really um, in a way I don't think about the part that I want to play anymore hmm. um, you know in this part I mean I, I, it's probably the third lead in the movie maybe I, I, I don't know I think now I just um, I I, fall, I fell in love with this character of Johnny I knew I what I wanted to do with him mm-hmm. and Terry was really an afterthought I mean if anything what happened with that character was um, you know because we had a lower budget with this film, there wasn't the necessity to cast uh, name actors. Um, so I told my casting director, I wanted to find actors that were just um, uh, sort of, they were losing out to, uh, to name actors in big films. And I know from the past, when I've been making my movies, is that actor we love, and then the financier of the studio says, eh, they don't have a name, can you get somebody from this TV show? or someone, you know, who's had a couple of films on their resume, um, and a lot of times you miss out on that great undiscovered talent. Mm. On this film, that's who we tried to find, and we got three great actors like like that. But this kid, Maddie Bush, who, who got the lead, um, the point I was gonna make, bringing it back to the character that I played, was he was so excited to be there, and so, so had such passion and love for acting, something that I had not seen in a long time. You know, you forget like, when they're young, they have a hunger that you don't see on a studio film. Mm. Um, that I think, quite honestly, even me as an actor, I had lost. So when Maddie came, and not only did he, did he want to tear it up as a performer, you know, every line in that script he wanted to talk about. And what else could we get out of it? Mm. And in a weird way, that that made my character stronger. Certainly, it it upped my game as a performer, but also. Uh, you know, I spent a lot more time sort of uh, re-examining every scene that we were in together.
0: Mm. So. And one of the real finds in this movie, I think, is go- I think most people are going to say, is your lead actress, Carrie Bechet. Yeah. I mean, a part like that has to be a tough part to cast for, because the way she's written, and people who see the movie, they'll realize she's like the coolest chick in the world. She's got a great car, she's a tennis pro, she's got a foul mouth, she drinks beer. I mean, so you, you're really looking for the perfect woman when you're casting.
2: Uh, yeah, um, and, you know, on paper, I think we only got halfway there. Um, and it wasn't until Kerry showed up. And the thing that's amazing is uh, I don't love to audition actors. I know from uh, from the past, uh, it's very hard to step into a room in front of a casting director and really give any performance. Um, and I, 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 most times, I don't think it's a... Uh, an honest look at what an actor is capable of. So we try not to do it. We're like if anybody's got any um, uh, any performance on film, I prefer to look at that because that's really what that's the work that they can do. Mm. In the in the case of all three of these kids, though, a lot of them had never been in front of a camera before. Um, so the thing that Carrie did in, in her audition and the first part we saw was just uh, a taped audition. There was such confidence in sort of the quiet moments between her lines of dialogue and when we saw that you know even i think she's 22 years old like wow this kid has command of of her craft Mm. um and day one when we started shooting um uh she she showed up and we finished the first scene and the dp and i looked at one another and said this kid's a movie star like wow let's we gotta we gotta take good care of this um, because th- this woman could potentially break out here, yeah. um, and the great thing is, you know, you talked about she's she's a little bit of a screw up, um, and in uh, sort of less capable hands, you know, that super cool chick could have just been a little goofier, kind of a joke. But you know, she found the you know the sadness in her eyes while also being you know the cool chick. So, and that's that was very tough to pull off, but she did it.
0: It's also hard because, I mean, in many ways, this is a classic love triangle, although the, the two women never meet each other, yeah. right? Um, it's got to be a tough line to walk because you don't want the fiancé character to be a raving lunatic because yeah. you, you want to keep it kind of in that gray. How hard was it? Mean, and there are scenes with the other actress who's a dead ringer for Juliette Lewis, yeah, by the yeah, way, yeah. which is kind of crazy. Yeah. Um, she's, some, sometimes she's horrible other times you really kind of relate to her that must have been a big challenge in writing it and directing it
2: the biggest challenge in any kind of a love triangle is um you know you tend to know uh which uh which character the hero's going to end up with but then you have that that other character and the key is how do you um how do you make them a real person so that it's it's plausible that that your hero would have fallen in love with them and uh, that they're a decent enough person that they're they're eventually going to walk or planning to walk down the aisle. And I know in other films I have failed at that. Um, you know, I think in *Purple Violets* the Donald Logue character, we went we made him too much of a prick, and people thought, well, I, I never bought that Selma Blair would be with this guy. So I was cognizant of that when creating the character of Claire. So we tried to, you know, although Johnny is, you know, as as one of the characters says, he's nice to a fault. He also has his flaws, and there are little things that he does that are, if not, inconsiderate they're not entirely thoughtful of his fiance, who's home in California. So um, you can see we, we wanted to give her a plausible reason to get upset with him, but also see that maybe she just isn't the right woman for, for him. Mm-hmm. And the big thing is, of course, that uh, you know, the, the movie is about your dreams and, you, know, against all odds, holding on to them. And, you know, when she says she doesn't believe in his dream, I think at that point, you know, it's not a complete bitchy thing to say, but that's when it gave him freedom to pursue the Brooke character.
0: Yeah. And in the movie he's interviewed. he he loves being a talk radio host, but his fiancé is encouraging him to apply for a job as a warehouse supervisor at a cardboard and corrugated products factory. It's called Moving Made Easy, yeah, right? yeah, yeah. I mean, that's... that's the categorical worst job of all time so how did how did you kind of sit and think okay what would be the absolute worst job
2: uh i actually i know a guy who has that job um uh and after i wrote the script the dp will rexer his brother-in-law has the same job so i know two guys who have that job um so, uh, and neither one of them has seen the film yet, and they may not be friends uh, after they do.
0: So, um, it's fun. I mean, one of the hallmarks of a performance from you—the one that makes it so fun to watch—is this kind of fast talking, off the cuff. You know, just a good talker kind of guy, and that's definitely what Uncle Terry is. And at the premiere on Friday at the Q and A, you made a joke that you're not particularly good at memorizing lines. So maybe a lot of what we're seeing is just kind of stream of consciousness. You going with it? Is that true, or is? Some of this stuff, some of this stuff has to be written out.
2: Uh, Yeah, no, the the bulk of it is written out. But you know, I've I've always been pretty terrible. Uh, Not when I'm acting for someone else, because uh, you know, the the nice perk about those gigs is you're in your trailer all day long, so you better memorize those lines. But when I'm also the filmmaker, you know, you show up and you have a number of other things to do. So usually, right before we go, I'll quickly look over the scene. But the advantage is given that you know, it takes me six months to a year to write a script, I'm, I'm, I'm familiar enough with the lines and the scene that I kind of know what I want to get there. But, you know, there's a beauty that happens sometimes where maybe if you, if you know the scene well enough but you're not worried about the specific lines, it kind of frees you up to throw some sort of uh, natural ad-libs in and there are a couple of, you know, the the funnier, more crass lines that, Uh, just kind of came out of my mouth uh, that maybe wouldn't have shown up uh, while I was writing, you know, so.
0: You seem to be a a filmmaker who, for whatever reason, embraces technology pretty freely. I had never heard of a film being released on iTunes first until Purple Violets. I had never heard of this new red camera until you talked about it. Is the idea of you embracing technology as far as filmmaking and film distribution something that... Is a pure interest of yours, or is it just a business necessity for you to be aware of all of these kind of things?
2: Uh, it's, a, it's a little bit of both. Um, you know, what, when I came up, um, you know, if you were an indie filmmaker or a low budget filmmaker, um, you, you, know, you would shoot 16 millimeter. And in the case of Brothers McMullen, you, know, you would buy recanned film stock that was left over from music videos. Um, you know, and I re-enrolled. I took one class at Hunter College uh, in order to get the student discount. Um, you know, and back then, you know, we recorded sound on this uh, cumbersome Nagra, which is sort of a reel-to-reel sound machine. And that's only 15 years ago. So, uh, you know, it's very hard to make a movie like that. So, the minute you know, we started to hear about um, um, digital photography, uh, if you make lower-budgeted films, I was excited by the idea of just well, these cameras are small; uh, they're more mobile. Uh, if you, if you're okay shooting without permits, like I still like to enjoy to do sometimes, like then that's another that's another great plus. Um, you know, I made this film called "Looking for Kitty," which is a real dog. I wouldn't advise renting it, but um, you know, we heard that people were making films on. Uh, it was called a uh, Panasonic 24P, I think the camera was called you know, which we bought at B&H for $2,500. And we said, you know, all right, somebody made a feature with this, let's try it. So we did like a pretty highly improvised um, film with that, another thing I wouldn't advise. (laughs) Um, But again, it was just about how do we, my, my goal has always been, how do you continue to make films with as little interference as possible? Like I love collaborating with actors, I love collaborating with my crew and my editor, who I hate collaborating with and I have plenty of friends who are at the studios but with executives for the most part um and I get what they want out of their films but a lot of times it's different from what we want from our films um so uh, so on the production side when when we found out about the red camera uh, my DP and I will Rex, are you know immediately went out and got one and you know it's not as inexpensive as that Panasonic camera I mentioned, but not nearly as expensive as a 35 millimeter camera. Cool. Um, so we went out and you know, the other thing we did was we shot a web series with it just to see, all right, we have this camera, we want to do camera tests, people are doing web series, let's try that. So- What was it, that called? Uh, it was called the linchpin, which is kind of like um, uh, the Irish uh, Jason Bourne who's not nearly as cool. <laughs> He doesn't okay. kick ass in the same way. Okay. Uh, so, um, but so it's been. It, there's been two sides to it. one. The one side is the the practical production side. Mm-hmm. How do I uh, how do I keep my costs down? How do I make, maintain control of what I'm doing? But then the other thing that's really exciting, which is how the iTunes thing came about, which is you know, I think it's important for indie filmmakers to start to fall out of love with theatrical distribution. I mean, I want my movies to play in theaters, but in the last couple of years, Warner Brothers Independent, Paramount Vantage, Miramax, House have all gone out of business. Um, you know, everybody's talking about how the multiplexes are filled with the tent poles and there are no screens for these small films. And, and when these small films show up, they're not doing the numbers they did 10 years ago. And that sucks, but, you know, that is our new reality. So um, you've got to fall in love with... Uh, your audience finding your film or uh, um, seeing your film in a, in a different way. Hmm. So uh, I've been excited about exploring, you know, the new digital platforms, um, which is why even at the Tribeca Film Festival they have this viral, um, virtual? Fe- a virtual virtual right. festival. Hmm. Uh, so when we heard about that, we immediately said, "Yeah, let's give it a shot." Um, you know, the other thing that's happened with me. Sorry if I'm ranting here, but uh, you know, my, my movies. They, you know, they're indie films, but they're not art house films. So uh, a lot of the distributors, you need to, you know, you do New York and LA first, and then based on your numbers there, they expand. But my films don't play well in New York and LA for whatever reason. Mm -hmm. Um, So we would never get the expansion and we would hear from people who like our films, who live in Cincinnati or St. Louis or Columbus, and they'd say, hey, you know, that film never came to our art house theater. Uh, but then we would see, like you know, the DVDs would do real strong numbers. So we, we've been trying to figure out, and now a bunch of companies doing these day and date things, uh, where you're at New York, LA, but then it's also available VOD. So anyhow, we're trying to figure out the people that love uh, our films, or if you're another indie filmmaker, how do you reach them at that moment where you have the uh, when the spotlight is on you, um, you know, when you have that opening weekend. So. Um, anyhow, that, that's uh,
0: so. You're, what's your hope then? For before, and then I'm going to take questions after this. But what's your hope for this film then? Uh,
2: the the hope is that you know a company like Fox Searchlight says, "Oh my God, we love this thing. It's the next Juno." And you go on and you make hundred million dollars. But you know, uh, if you don't, if we don't get that, then it's we're excited to explore what is the, the new way to get indie films out there. Um, You know, if it means hitting, you know, 40 film festivals um, and let that be sort of your theatrical release and then have it available to whether it's um, being streamed or video on demand, uh, you know, we don't really know. But, uh, you know, the change is coming. It's not quite here yet because we haven't figured out how to monetize these films, but that is the future. So we're just, you know, we just want to stay with it as it moves forward, you know.
0: How about questions from the uh, audience here?
3: Hi, Ed, uh, a big fan. Um, I uh, actually spoke with Jack Mulcahy about doing a retrospective um, documentary on the making of the Brothers McMullen and understand, uh, you know, that's the past. So, um, But one thing I did want to ask you is um, I- I've heard you mention many times that it's very hard to replicate what was done in the early 90s, you know, clerks, uh, Brothers McMullen and el, Mari- el Mariachi, um i i, I 'm at a loss like why is it so difficult for somebody to come out of nowhere in this uh, day and age and 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 do what you did
2: Um, you know i i, I don 't really know quite honestly um you know it, i think it goes back to what we were just talking about um the amount of money today that uh, that a studio would need to spend in order to get an El Mariachi out there or a clerks or a McMullen where they could where it could do the kind of numbers domestic box office that those films did, I guess they don 't feel it 's worth the gamble anymore uh, you know I mean I know there are some small films with completely unknown casts that look like crap the way all three of those films did um, that might get out there but you know they do and you know back then clerks I think did two million dollars you know today 's clerk does um you know ten thousand uh, dollars for whatever reason you know when we were kids uh it you know in the in the nineties it was cool to go to Angelica and see clerks um you know on a Tuesday night so you could talk about it with your friends, but now you know. Kids are watching movies on their phones and online and on YouTube, and you know it's a different world. And you know they will dictate to us, or you know the 27-year-old kid who's making that film now, uh, you know they'll figure out what the uh, what today's equivalent is of what we did 15 or 16 years ago. Um, but uh, you know I'm I'm not the guy to answer that question. I think you know the, that next group of kids coming up um, will answer
1: that question. We have another one to your right over here in the back. Uh, hi, Mr. Burns. I'm uh, also a filmmaker with the uh, festival. I'm in the shorts category. Also went to Hunter College. Uh, my nice. question, my question for you is, um, um, what can be expected from the film festival for someone like me after meetings or whatever? How do you best prepare for for the next thing? You know, if you go into a meeting with a production company or things along those lines. How do yourself how do you come are you um, what are you prepared with specifically
2: best advice i I ever got um, about that is uh, a guy named James Sheamus who now runs focus films um, came aboard Brothers McMullen at the very end um, um when I needed help sort of cutting it down and raising a little bit more money. Uh, we had gotten into Sundance and uh he said to me he said, "Look." Uh, the ten days that you're at Sundance, regardless of what happens with Brothers McMullen, because nobody really thought we were going to sell that film, mm. but we knew that it, you know I, I would probably get some attention. I might get an agent, um, and I might be able to have meetings with production companies and maybe even a studio. Uh, he said, "You have to have your next screenplay in hand. Mm. You know that is your moment when you're hot, and they're going to be inclined to you know coming off of the heat of a festival, they're more inclined." to say yes. So, um, you know, I know a lot of people knocked, um, she's the one for feeling like the same movie as Brothers McMullen, you know, but the reason it was was, we didn't think we were gonna sell McMullen, so I just wrote a funnier version of it, I thought. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I knew, you know, I was dating one of the actresses, so I gave her a part, and Mike McGlone, who who I loved, I wrote a different kind of part for him. Um, And, you know, I mean, I got blessed, uh, you know, at Sundance. They said yes to "She's the one," and then they bought McMullen. So um, that, that was lucky. But you know even now, when I look at my career, where I screwed up was when I didn't have the next film ready. because when, when, when your film comes out, you know, there's the anticipation leading up to the release, Everybody's in love with you. And then you get that review. And all of a sudden, you know, if it ain't that, that four-star review, nobody's in love with you. So get your next film ready. Before they tell you the one before it sucked, Um, so I know it's maybe not. If you're in the shorts category, uh, you know the thing is, you know, you've got to just keep writing, keep making films. Um, If you, you know, if you're here, obviously you got you know some some good notice and attention. If the goal is to um, to make features, you know, get that feature script, um, get it get it ready. All right.
3: I have a question here to your front left. Hi, Mason Hayatin with Pexlip Studios and Gallery M. And the distribution angle now is really the linchpin. You're trading off the studio system for technology companies like Apple to succeed. How are you going to make money in that transition? Uh,
2: I don't know, Um, quite honestly. But, you know, the alternative would be going and sort of saying, all right, I'll go direct the studio romantic comedy, um, which uh, I'm not willing to do. So there, there is no choice, but to sort of embrace this uh, technology revolution and try and figure it out. And look, we all may fail. I mean, look, look what happened to the music business. And you know, nobody's making the kind of money they made five or 10 years ago. But that's not stopping all these kids from, you know, making music. Um, You know, maybe the albums don't sound as great as they did when they had a million dollar budget, but does that make the song any less moving or impactful? Um, So if it means, you know, for those of us who want to do this, we have to tell smaller stories and shoot them in 15 days instead of 45 days, or work with unknown actors you know, um, that's not a bad thing. I mean, there, there's plenty of the other films out there for, for everyone to enjoy. There aren't enough of the small films. Um, so keep your budgets low. Maybe you get to break even. Um, maybe you get lucky and someone will figure out a way to, to turn a little bit of a profit. But, uh, you know, the alternative is not doing it. So
1: We have another question right in the center of the theater.
3: Hey Ed, I'm uh, Anjo. I actually build uh, film and effect systems on uh, Apple hardware, but I'm not going to ask you about that. Um, so now you were a co-writer on Generation Kill, right? Well, no, or... That's
2: another Ed Burns. Oh, okay. Yeah.
3: All right. I, I was He's a retired cop from Baltimore. Okay, very nice. Um, so I was going to say, you know, I, I haven't seen this movie. I'm he...
2: hoping for his residual checks, though. They still haven't showed up.
3: <laughs> yeah, he certainly did a great job on that. Um, so. I haven't seen this, I guess nobody has, and you said that you know you wanted to have, be able to do the Woody Allen thing, personal point of view, things like that. Maybe everybody can't do that, but certainly on this and other films, you've had kind of what I guess you might say is like the Ed Burns signature on, on your pieces of work. What is it that you put into your films and your work that you think other people don't, that we should really look out for, and that... We might appreciate as that first person, maybe not Woody Allen, but but your own signature that you put on things
2: you know i, I can 't speak to what anyone else should do with you know with their films, really, other than you know fight like Hell to get them made and then fight like Hell to get them seen uh, you, you know for me um, i've made uh, this is my ninth film. I probably like five of the movies i 've made four of them I, you know are, are terrible. Um, and, I, and I'm okay with that because you know part of it is that is the process of an artist. You know, you got you got to try something, and sometimes it doesn't quite work, and then you learn from those uh, mistakes. I think now, 15 years in, uh, I'm, I'm much more comfortable with, I guess, what my voice is and uh, the kind of films I want to continue to make. Um, I'm not you know, sort of keeping up with the Joneses, if you will. Um, so that, that's kind of uh, refreshing and, and liberating for me, but you know, whatever my, my stamp is, is my whole thing has always been, how do you, I, I wanted to just hold up a mirror to the world that I see, the people that I know, that I felt I wasn't seeing their lives represented in the films I was seeing, um, you know, whether it's the studio world or the indie world. Um, and that's what I'll just continue to do. You know, and, and some will work and some won't work, but you know, after 15 years, uh, you've. I'm less uh, obsessed with the success of it and have fallen back in love with the process. Hmm. So,
0: so you've already said you hate looking for Kitty. So not counting Nice Guy Johnny and Brothers McMullen, what's your favorite?
2: Uh, N- nice Guy Johnny. Oh, and McMullen. Uh, my fa- my favorite is Sidewalks of New York. Yeah, yeah, that one is the one that, the movie that I saw in my head. We were able to get on screen, and I was lucky enough to get you know some terrific actors in that. And uh, that was
0: with this one person from each borough. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's right.
2: like six New Yorkers linked through their sexual relationships. We're actually working on a script now called "Under Blue Suburban Skies," which is sort of the suburban answer to that.
3: Cool. So, uh, this is actually not a question. Uh, last night, either you or your publicist tweeted. Um, a link to my production company's blog, where we listed you as one of our favorite
2: DVD commentators. I uh, I tweeted that. <laughs> I we... do my own tweeting now. <laughs>
3: <laughs> <laughs> We'd like to thank you by actually offering you one of our films that we've made.
2: Oh, okay, uh, cool, cool, if you don't good mind, yeah. yeah, it's called Uptown.
0: What makes you such a good DVD commentator?
2: Uh, you know. <laughs> I think back to when I was in film school and, you know, this is back in the early 90s, there wasn't a lot available to you to learn how to make no-budget films. Um, There was one article I read in, I think it was Filmmaker Magazine before it was called Filmmaker. Hmm. Uh, There's this guy named John Jost. He made this film called All the Vermeers in New York. I think his budget was something like $8,000. And he wrote this article. I mean, he hates Hollywood. And he said, all you need is a two man crew. A camera person who is also the director and he recorded the sound on that film on a Sony Walkman if anybody remembers what the hell that is. Um, no lights, no makeup, no wardrobe, no production design. And he goes, why do you need anything more than that? F- write a story that you can do that way and guess what? You're gonna be a feature filmmaker. I read the article I said, I'm doing it. And that was Brothers McMullen, I mean, fr- a direct result of reading that guy's passion and his disdain for the process that you know we've been told, uh, or the machine or the army that you've been told you need to make a film. You know, it, again, that film will not compete with anything that's playing down at the multiplex. But you know, it's the folk song compared to the symphony. You know, it's just uh, one guy's writing a, a smaller piece of music. So uh, where, every commentary that I've done in Sidewalks, we made for a million dollars. We shot it in 18 days. All handheld, uh, no production design, and we just went into existing locations. A lot of the actors wore their own stuff. Um, that was, and a lot of my commentaries are about, uh, you know, I'm not really talking about my motivations behind the screenplay. I'm talking about, all right, here's an example of, uh, you know, how you can shoot a scene for $3, um, or how continuity doesn't matter if your story works. or... You know, whatever whatever it is. So those, just little tips to help. It's, a, it's the commentary I wish I had back in 93. Yeah.
3: Last question here to your left.
0: Hello, Mr. Burns. Uh, my name you is know. Victor, and I'm a New York City-based actor. And it's funny you brought that up, because I want to ask you about uh, Sidewalks of New York, which has already become a New York classic, quite frankly. Cool. Um, I think I read somewhere, I saw you in an interview, I th- did you write that during Saving Private Ryan? I did, yeah. And uh, as an actor, that must have been an amazing time. Did you come up with that idea when you were, before you got cast for uh, Saving Private Ryan? Because that must have been, I think you wrote it while you were filming it. And then you got Spielberg out there <laughs> directing, and you got your project in the trailer, which must have been an amazing time.
2: I, I mean, the, the you know the, the greatest time in my life, uh, You know, I'm a, I'm, I'm a young actor, um, and, but you know more importantly, I'm, I'm a, a young filmmaker. And the two things that I learned on that film, you know, I thought that a director was supposed to always be directing the actors. And in the first three films I made, after every take, I would talk to the actors, give them a note, even give them a line reading, uh, which you should absolutely never do. Um, but I thought that was the job. Um, we w- when on Private Ryan, two weeks into the script, we realized, you know, Spielberg, only gives us three takes, um, and he never gives us any direction. And then finally one day, uh, a fourth take, and then he talks to us, a fifth take, he pulls someone else aside, a sixth take. And after about 10 takes, he finally says, okay, great, we got it. So at lunch, you know, of course, we all followed him around since a bunch of us were um, you know, aspiring filmmakers and trying to write scripts, so we were always picking his brain about everything other than the scene that we were gonna be shooting in the afternoon. Um, And we said, you know, why today? And he goes, well, today you didn't know what the hell you were doing. Mm. He says, you know, I'll give every actor three takes to figure it out. You know, like, I don't expect anyone to get it on the first or second, but by the third, especially with an ensemble, you know, I I have since equated it to sort of sports. Like, you know when you're playing well, um, and actors know when a scene kind of clicks. And Stephen's philosophy was, I'll allow them to find it themselves before I interfere. Mm. Um... And since then, that's what I've done. And, uh, you know, I mean, I love it. I know the actors respond to that kind of freedom because it also, it loosens them up and allows them to, you know, if on the first take they gamble and maybe go off book a little bit uh, and I'm not coming up to them saying, actually, it's, uh, you're supposed to say this and that, then all of a sudden there's a different kind of freshness and, uh, you know, um, an honesty, which this film, you kind of said, it has, it has that. The other thing that I got... Uh, on that film, which is, I had this idea for Sidewalks of New York um, to do a pseudo doc. Watching how quickly we shot Saving Private Ryan because it was all handheld and all available light and two, two takes usually. I was like, that's how you make an indie film. I mean, you know, my little story, I can bang this thing out in 10 days. Um, so it took us 18, but you know, I took that shooting style because of the way. Uh, uh, because I, of the way, how, or how quickly, I should say, uh, we shot that film. So,
0: Well, thank you all for the questions, and thanks to the Apple Store and IndieWire for having us today. Ed, thanks so much for your time.
2: Yeah, thank you. And guys, thanks a lot. Uh, normally, I would stay and you know uh, answer anybody's questions, but uh, I have another Tribeca event right after this, so I, I do have to run right out. But I'm at a bunch of these types of things, so... Uh, I think we have three more screenings of the film, and after each one of those, I'll be there. So if you want to find me, even if you can't get into the film, I'll hang out, answer any questions, um, you know, take your headshots, and all that kind of stuff, if anybody wants that. All right? Cole,
1: I appreciate it. Thank you very much. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, Ed Burns. Don't forget, this is Tribeca. We have events happening all day, every day. We have another one happening in just 20 minutes. Not even babies. We'll be doing it at eight o'clock this evening, the film babies, wonderful event, but also for all the events we have this week, our website, apple.com forward slash retail forward slash Tribeca guys. It has the complete schedule available as well as an iPhone and iPod app. Now as well, guys, if you guys have a mobile device, you can download the free app, which will have the complete schedule of events, not just at the Apple store, but all throughout the festival. Uh, All available for free right there. And one of the most fantastic features is that you can pick out the events you're interested in and build a customized itinerary for the film festival. Absolutely free. So go ahead and download that. It totally enriches the experience. Thank you very much for coming out tonight. And remember, we have another event at 8 o'clock. Have a wonderful evening.